You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Grace Saves All podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to have on the podcast Kevin Miller. Kevin has made two outstanding documentaries, Hellbound, which covers the different views on hell in Christianity, and JES USA, which investigates the relationship between Jesus and the USA and violence. Kevin is an award-winning novelist. His debut novel, Up the Creek, has sold over 35,000 copies and has topped Amazon.com's Canadian Literature bestseller list for over 17 weeks. Kevin has also taught creative writing across Canada and the U.S., as well as in the U.K. and Australia. He has been featured on CBC Radio, CNN, and numerous other radio and TV outlets, and his work has been written about and reviewed in dozens of publications, including the New York Times, Variety, The Globe, and Mail, and the Vancouver Sun. You can find out more about Kevin at his website, kevinmillerxi.com. Welcome, Kevin Miller, to the podcast. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Well, one of the things I just wanted to say getting started is what an encouragement that that you have been to those of us who are seeking spiritually. I don't think a lot of people like to be preached at, and your documentaries are so wonderful because you don't really preach at us in your documentaries. You just invite us into a conversation, and you really let us hear all of the different voices uh, of the of the just all the different positions. You did that in Hellbound. You did that in Jesus USA. Anyway, so I just wanted to thank you for uh, the way that you put your uh, documentaries together. And I guess the first one, I w- first documentary I want to talk about is is Hellbound and how it is that that documentary came together and how your views developed to make you want to put that documentary out there. Yeah, well, uh, I appreciate uh, your feedback on the films. And, you know, the uh, not preaching part takes a great act of discipline on my part because when you, you know, the thing that makes you want to make a film like Hellbound is making a discovery, something you're excited about and wanting to share that with the world. And in my case, it was um, I have a second life as a book editor. I've worked in publishing uh, as much or more than I've worked in film over the years. And back in 2008, I was editing a book by my friend Brad Jerzak called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, Hope, Hell, and the New Jerusalem. And at that point, I'd been spending a lot of time with Brad, another friend of ours, Ron Dart. We've been going for hikes in the mountains um, and having all kinds of philosophical and theological discussions. I was also being introduced to uh, Eastern Orthodoxy through another friend of ours, uh, Archbishop Lazar Poalo. And um, it was really opening up my mind to different ways of conceiving of Christianity and in particular, the idea of, of hell. So working on Brad's book was really a revelatory experience for me because what Brad does when he writes that book is he asks a simple question. We have this belief in hell, a place of eternal torment for those who either reject God or, or whom God rejects, depending on your theology. Mm-hmm. Where does that belief come from? can we find it in the Old Testament? Can we find it in the New Testament? Or can we find it in one or another church tradition? So he goes and systematically looks at various terms or images that have been 
interpreted uh, in in support of eternal torment in the Old Testament. He does the same thing in the New Testament, and he does that through church tradition. What he comes away with is that there is no univocal view on this subject. There's multiple voices in the Bible. There's been multiple voices throughout history. So suddenly mm-hmm. what he, he does is, is what he did for me was create a lot of space for diversity and a lot of space for discussion. And he also raised the possibility that all people might one day be reconciled to God and to each other. And I thought that was tremendous, tremendously exciting because I came to faith at, at uh, age nine at a Christian Bible camp through essentially what amounts to a turn or burn gospel presentation. Um, yeah. And, and I, I was terrified of hell. Um, I, you know, I prayed, you know, the sinner's prayer multiple times that night just to make sure it's stuck. And, um, <laughs> I remember coming home that summer, I lived on a farm in Saskatchewan and, um, looking at my family, I was going out to the garden one night to go help weed. And I stood there on the driveway and looked at my family and realized that if they didn't come to learn what I just learned, they were all going to go to hell. But I was too afraid to tell them what I had just done because they had quite an antagonistic view uh, toward evangelical Christians at the time. So I kept silent and this kind of just churned away in my gut. And so I I like to say that when I became a Christian, with something good came something bad, sort of a virus that snuck in with it. And it was a virus of fear, um, a fear of the very God that I had come to believe in mm-hmm. and what he was going to do to me and those I loved if we didn't sort of somehow pass whatever test needed to be passed. And right. so and was, you were concerned, you were concerned that maybe you hadn't done it the right way or done it enough. And now you're concerned yeah. about your parents and your family, but you can't bring it up to them because you know, they're already antagonistic towards it and that might drive them further away. Yeah. Or, you know, it might lead them to, get angry at me or get angry at the people at the camp who told me this message or whatever, like just to give you a sense of, you know, the world I lived in. Um, my, my grandfather actually was a minister in what's called the United Church of Canada, but he was essentially a functioning atheist. He had been a chaplain in World War II, had been uh, involved in some of the worst fighting in the final year of the war. And I think that his faith went out the window as a result of that. But he came home and continued to work as a minister because he felt that religion had a good uniting function in society. It provided morals and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And um, my parents, uh, you know, they kind of were at the very best, you could say lackadaisical Christians. My dad, he had this new uh, four-wheel drive tractor that was extremely loud and he loved to rev it up on Sunday mornings to remind our midnight neighbors that he was going out to work and yeah. they weren't. Uh, so that was kind of the world I was in, but the, the key thing, you know, really tracing to hellbound is that I really think hellbound began when I was nine years old and there was this fear that kind of had gripped me and defined me. Um, and hellbound was my final way of just finally getting rid of it, of just really confronting it to say, all right, there's this idea that all people might ultimately be reconciled to God and each other can it pass the test? Can it actually be true? Uh, mm-hmm. And so I set out to make the film to really kind of challenge myself because I had kind of come to believe it was true, but I wanted to see if it could hold up in the face of great evil. And and that's why I begin the film at 9-11 at ground zero, because I feel, you know, that's a, a moment where we all sense that there's no moral ambiguity here, that we know right. who the good guys are and we know who the bad guys are. And yeah, we have a sense that there's just been a grave injustice. And if these, the people who did this don't go to hell, well then nothing can be right in the world. And well, I that's think, what I, you know, that's yeah. what I found out about uh, surprisingly, once I started thinking about 
uh, hell. I'd always thought of hell as this negative, as this negative thing. But then I've, once I really started looking into it, I found out that it's a really a very positive thing for, for people who feel like they have been wounded greatly mm-hmm. or what do we do about the most evil actors in history? Certainly, they don't. They have forfeited any eternal happiness. And so hell serves an important role. It's, it's the place, it's the ultimate place where we can scapegoat all of those people who, who, um, who are so awful and so evil. We can point at them and say, well, they are, I, I may have some problems, but they're pure evil. Yeah. And so it, it, it becomes a place to scapegoat. Well, and that's it was important to me to begin the discussion from the position of the victim because the victim needs hell because mm-hmm. the victim can't fix the evil that's been done against them, at least some forms of evil. They're just too great for any of us to fix. So we have to say, well, then God better fix it or God's not good. And in our pain and anger, the only way we can see to fix it is to bring the same sort of thing against our the victimizers as was brought against us. So you know, Brian uh, McLaren says that we need all kinds of churches for all kinds of people. And I, I kind of want to paraphrase that and to say that we need all kinds of hell for all kinds of people. I, I think sometimes we need to believe in fire and brimstone and torment because it's the only thing that can get us through um, moments when we just we've we've been so victimized and there's nothing we can do about it and so we can almost rest in this comfort that well god will deal with it but as we can move beyond the pain and we start to see the victimizers not just as a victimizer but as somebody with a story and somebody who was in many Mm -hmm. ways probably socialized into a certain position we start to recognize um that maybe there's a better way to deal with this um there's a better way to deal with that person and there's a better way to deal with the pain i'm feeling inside beyond just anger and a desire for vengeance um and uh you know some of us die never getting beyond that stage but i think that there's a hope that that we can because you know the whole thing about hell for me is is hell as a place of eternal conscious torment serves no purpose in the universe except satisfaction um, for, uh, people who aren't in hell, it does nothing for the people who are in hell. And it would seem to me that as humans, we can envision a much better way to deal with offenders and we can actually achieve it in our world. We can achieve the ultimate form of justice, which is reconciliation between victim and victimizer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what better story can you imagine that a mother or a father who is able to forgive the person who murdered their child and not only forgive, but, but to actually um, you know, perform an act of mercy toward that person. That actually happens in the real world. So if we think God, his ultimate answer, God's ultimate answer to evil can't even achieve that, well, it, God isn't as good as we are then. Well, yeah. And when you start really thinking about the whole, the whole picture, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, then any act of evil that happens in this world is something that is foreseen, was foreseen mm-hmm. uh, by God. Or so ordained, yeah. Depending on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if if then God is all good, I like the way Thomas Talbot puts it. Said that God, being all good, draws a line and does not allow His children to fall beyond that point at which He can st- still accomplish their healing and restoration. And and the the challenge for us is that we see such tremendous acts of evil that it's hard for us to believe that there can be recovery, that there could ever be recovery from that, that the, that, that the victimizer 
is so is has done something so horrible that the only possible uh, relief for the victim would be the permanent extermination of the victimizer. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, once you start to realize that that God um, is going to be all in all, and you start seeing that, then you just start to think, okay, God has ways of put of bringing this all together, and that takes a lot of, I guess, philosophical thoughtfulness and. Um, What's interesting to me about you, when just when we visited on the phone a week or so ago, was that this is this has all come really clearly to you that it really just that that, that the only way it really all holds together it, for God to be all good, all knowing, and all powerful is if there is a final universal restoration, universal reconciliation, and we're all brought into God together, and everything is healed. So how did you come to set? I mean, a lot of people don't come to that clear a conclusion, but you've come to a very clear conclusion on this. Well, partly it's from spending a lot of time studying the topic. You know, when you set out to make a film like Hellbound, uh, you know, you're going around and interviewing all kinds of theologians and philosophers and and other sorts of people uh, who are experts in the subject matter. And so you have to kind of become a quasi-expert yourself in order to have an intelligent conversation with these folks. Right. And, and I do have some theological background and undergraduate degree and and kind of got partway through my master's. Uh, and I, in, in my master's degree in particular, I focused on epistemology, which is basically the philosophy of knowing how do we how do we form beliefs? Um, how can we know that we actually have uh, you know hold justified beliefs? What is the nature of knowledge? And I just became really fascinated with that whole process. And I guess this really even goes back to the first documentary I worked on, Expelled: uh, No Intelligence Allowed, which looked at uh, the battle between uh, people who believe in intelligent design. And then the broader scientific community, and okay, and that gets expelled. That. I didn't know about that documentary. Yeah. Say, that, say the name of it again. Expelled. Yeah, it's called Expelled. No intelligence allowed. So it featured Ben Stein. Uh, so I worked on that with him, uh, which people might remember from uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off or Win mm-hmm. Ben Stein's Money. And so, um, but the film I think ultimately is is a film about the philosophy of science, which is how do we form a scientific belief. Um, what what is the relationship between science and philosophy? Where does philosophy uh, end and science begin? And can you actually even do science without engaging in philosophy? And my conclusion is that you can't because, you, you know, everyone's going to begin reasoning from a set of um, axioms. So a set of beliefs that really uh, are assumed to be true. Um, and mm-hmm. so this is, you get into some really interesting discussions here with this idea of foundationalism. So there's a philosoph- philosophical school, uh, you know, called foundationalism, which believes that there's, you, if you kind of look at knowledge, you can eventually pare it down to certain self-evident beliefs, um, that, that those beliefs don't rest on any other beliefs. Um, but unfortunately, philosophy foundationalism breaks down because even a belief in foundationalism is itself a a Uh belief, which is anyway, it just, so the point is that we all basically settle on a set of axioms from which we reason. And so those axioms are going to shape the types of questions we ask, um, the, uh, the way we view the world. So for instance, uh, you know, the first nations, uh, native Americans, didn't uh, create science because they had a completely different set of axioms than, than uh, you know, Northern Europeans um, mm-hmm. in terms of their engagement with the universe. So they never, their set of beliefs never caused them to form a scientific question the way we would understand science. Um, and so they engaged with reality in a very different way that was very real, as real to them as our way of engaging with the reality is to us. 
So I think one of the one of the things for me when it comes to where why do I have clarity on this issue? It's it's because I've spent a lot of time thinking about and um, how do we form beliefs on this subject and all subjects really, and mm-hmm. also reading a lot. Uh, uh, you know, people like Thomas Talbot, people like uh, David Bentley Hart, uh, Eric Reiton, John Cronin, um, uh, Robin Perry, uh, people who've done a lot of thinking about where this beliefs belief comes from. Because I think this is one of the things when it comes to hell or so many other religious beliefs, we don't view ourselves as holding a belief within a particular theological tradition or, uh, you know, some kind of interpretive school. Right. We just think we, we believe in Christianity, which is almost self-evident. Yeah. When I was, when I was, uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in uh, Texas in the Bible Belt. And so I'm coming of age in the 70s, and uh, a family wasn't going to church, but I was invited to church, and 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 I didn't know it, but what I was being exposed to was fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. But the way it was presented to me was they said, this is what's in the Bible, this message about if you don't accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're going to hell forever. And they said, this is what's in the Bible. We don't We reject the traditions of men at this church. We just preach the Bible. And so it made it seem like if you disagreed with what they were saying, you were disagreeing with the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but then what I found out later on was the the their idea about hell being eternal conscious torment for all unbelievers, all people who die in unbelief at death, that that was a tradition that went back to a man named Augustine in the early centuries of the church. He was the one that really formulated it first strongly. Uh, and it was his understanding then that became the tradition of understanding in the Roman Imperial Church, which then came through the Protestant Reformation, that that hell doctrine. But so it turns out that the hell doctrine of eternal conscious torment turns out to be one of the oldest traditions that developed in the history of Christianity. But there were other traditions, other ways of understanding hell that existed in the early centuries of the church that were different. The annihilation point of view and the restoration point of view. And just finding that out was very liberating for mm-hmm. me. And you do a good job of presenting that in the in the Hellbound uh, documentary. Well, I think, yeah, your experience kind of mirrors mine. Like I became a Christian, quote unquote, but really I, in a sense, got indoctrinated into a fundamentalist form of Christianity without realizing it. But that was for me what Christianity was from that point on. I knew that there was Roman Catholics and other types of Christians, but of course they were all wrong. Uh, right. Because, uh, you know, they just, I didn't really know why they were wrong. I just was sort of led to believe that they were. But yeah, that whole idea that we don't believe in the traditions of men, the traditions of people, um, it's uh, its kind of a, you know, to me, it just shows just a simple lack of understanding in terms of, of how we form beliefs. Like, for instance, if you're reading the Bible in English, you are relying on the traditions of men because there's there's uh, interpretive choices that are made to render the text from the original languages into English, and so you're already one step removed. So you you know you can't unless you can read it in the original languages. You're engaging in the traditions of men, um, and um, yeah. But anyway, that that whole idea that that yeah, we just preach what the Bible says. It's it's unfortunate, um, uh, and because you know, when you, when that is backstopped by hell to deviate from that, uh, teaching then becomes, uh, an eternal offense. And so there's no room now for discussion because, you know, it requires unanimity. And this is the thing is, um, unanimity is very precarious because it only takes one person 
to, uh, to destroy it. Um, so I, I remember interviewing uh, someone for uh, Hellbound who talked about the difference between unanimity and unity. And I think that was a really important distinction because unanimity says we all have to believe exactly the same thing. And anyone who, de- who deviates from this, in a sense, is expelled from the community. They become a scapegoat because they threaten the group. But if we become unified instead around, um, say, uh, a collection of values that we are going to uh, be a loving community, we are you know, going to be an open community, we can now have a discussion. Well, what does it mean to be loving? What does it mean to be open? There's mm-hmm. a lot of room now for different points of view. But if we are going to put out a statement of faith that says A, B, C, and D, and in order to be part of our group, you have to assent to all these things, now we create an inside and outside and us and a them. And we now essentially have created a mechanism for control and scapegoating. And, and I think that that's been one of the problems uh, you know, throughout history with the church um, is this whole idea that belief is the most important thing. You know, it well, just one really, of the, yeah, one of the, yeah. yeah. One of the things that happens then is that um, if you get a wrong belief, then the penalty is eternal torment. Mm-hmm. And so now the stakes are really high for uh, for wrong belief. And so if you have somebody that is now considered to be a heretic, well, then you have to, they're very dangerous. And if God is going to eternally torment heretics in hell forever, then maybe as God's representatives, we can go ahead and do that. We can go ahead and do that right now. Well, and, and we should, because if we don't, w- their questions are going to infect the community and a whole bunch of other people are going to go with them. So better that one should one man should die than all should perish, you know, as Caiaphas says. Um, this this idea of that we're willing to scapegoat the, the individual heretics for the sake of the group because we have to protect the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then once, once Christianity became the religion of, of the empire— um, in the in Western civilization, and then it just sort of became the religion of the various states, uh, nation states that developed, and then uh, eventually United States of America. But the idea is that we're all some somehow carrying on. The old idea was that we're all somehow carrying on the kingdom of God in physical form, and so we have now a mandate as Christians to use violence in order to create the kingdom of God and protect the kingdom of God on earth. And we can use that violence to take over countries, to to subject peoples, to protect boundaries, um, to enforce orthodoxy. And then so now you end up with a very violent, with a religion that's justifying violence, ironically, in the name of the Prince of Peace who rejected violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really do a good job in tying all of this together then in the, your most recent documentary, J-E-S-U-S-A which it's, it's a mashup of Jesus and USA. And I thought that was interesting how you accomplished that in the title of the documentary, the sort of the, how that, how Jesus and the USA kind of get mashed together and then how violence that, that how violence, the hell doctrine and violence and all that thing, all of that works together to produce a, a, a sort of a violent um, Christianity. So Say a little bit more about that and how that resulted in your uh, JES USA documentary. Yeah, um, I look at Hellbound as really a film about trying to look at the question of divine violence and JES USA is looking at human violence. I mean, the two are kind of intermixed in both films, really, um, because one kind of flows into the other. Violent people tend to project their violence onto God and also they project their God's violence onto the world. But JES USA, it, originally the film was actually called uh, The Silence of the Lamb, 
singular. <laughs> and um, the idea was to kind of play off the silence of the lambs, but also to ask the question is why, you know, the lion of God has been roaring throughout history. What about the lamb? Why has it been silent and why has it been silenced? And I kind of joke that uh, when I pitched that title to Greg Boyd, when I interviewed him, he instantly launched into a Hannibal Lecter impersonation. And I thought, boy, I never want to see that again. So we better change the name of this movie. Uh, but uh, no, it, actually the, the thought came to me midway through production. Uh, I think it was after I had interviewed, uh, oh no, I can't really remember the precise moment, but anyway, I was in Washington, DC and we'd been talking to a number of people about this, this problem of Christianity and violence and, and mm -hmm. why does Christianity, which is founded by the Prince of Peace, always tend to end up supporting the violence of whatever state it happens to find itself in. And and the, the word patriotism kept coming up. And so I was just actually getting ready to go out filming uh, that day. And uh, I just got this idea of JES USA. I thought, wow, they share you know half the same letters. Has anyone yeah. ever done that before? And I thought that's perfect because the title, I always like the title to capture the essence of the film. And so you have these two words that flow together. It's, it's impossible to separate them. And, and that's really the problem. One of the problems we see in America is uh, American Christianity is this, this uh, intermixing of patriotism and Christianity. And it's not a problem that's unique to America. And I don't mean to say that America is a special case or America is especially problematic in the history of the world, because it really goes back to the moment Christianity became, uh, you know, essentially the official religion of the Roman Empire. It, it now becomes subsumed by the needs of the state. And so it's no wonder that that Christianity begins to shift in terms of how it views God, um, how it views hell, and you know the the inability to question. So we ha now have mm -hmm. authoritative interpreters of the of the scriptures and that sort of thing. And and anyone you know it you know reached a point where in countries like England to question the church was to question the state, and to question the state was to question the church. And so you could be you know killed for both. Um, right both types of offenses. So they became so intermingled. And so in JES USA, I wanted to look at how did this happen? Why does this keep happening throughout history? And how can we transcend it? And, and in the midst of that discussion, I talk about really what is the role of religion and what is the relationship between religion and violence throughout history? And how does Christianity, and it really begins with the Jewish, the early Jewish faith, and then Christianity, how is it really um, invert this relationship so that Christ, so that religion, rather than um, a source of violence, it becomes a way of of transcending it. And and I'm I'm coming at this also from a perspective of mimetic theory and uh, Rene Girard. Right. So, yeah. Say some more about that. Yeah. Rene Girard would say that you know um, religion ultimately arose as a solution to violence. So as humans are are evolving from uh, essentially ape-like creatures to, you know, versions of what we are today, we can no longer create structure through mere dominance. We have to find some other way to create structure in society. And so he talks about how the earliest humans stumbled upon the scapegoat mechanism. So um, to avoid a, a violence of all against all, when a problem, the community encounters a problem, they focus the blame for the problem on an individual or maybe a, a group of people. And what happens is the, the community finds unity around the victim and they sacrifice the victim. And it seems like because now the, the, the thing that was pitting them all against each other has miraculously gone away, they, all, they begin mm -hmm. to think that maybe this victim was actually sent to us, that they're somehow divine. 
and uh, that they were sent to solve the crisis that we faced. And so out of that arises a ritual. Let's repeat the sacrifice. We may repeat it literally, maybe at the same time of year. Uh, and that may eventually become, we repeat the sacrifice in a more figurative sense, but we, we start develop, develop rituals. We develop taboos, things that we, that led to the crisis that we're not going to do anymore. We also have a myth. We have a story about the sacrifice that puts all the blame onto the victim, that the reason why we had a problem in the community was because of that evil person or those evil individuals and the myth, it masks over the community's role in the violence and the community was the victim. The scapegoat was actually the evil person. And so what we see, what Gerard discovered was when he started to read the Hebrew text and the Christian Bible is he starts to see an inversion of this story. Um, that beginning with say a story like Joseph, um, we see that that story is told from the perspective of the scapegoat. So okay. we start to see that, that the mob that formed around him, in this case, his brothers were wrong, that he was innocent. And, um, and, uh, so that when he, you know, when they're reconciled, they expect Joseph to bring violence against them, but instead right. he brings, he brings forgiveness. And this really prefigures what Jesus is going to do. Jesus ultimately, um, you know, he steps into the mechanism of the scapegoating world and he exposes it as false by coming back from the dead. That's why he's so dangerous because what is the, the primary tool that empires and tyrants have to hold over the people? It's yeah, fear of death. It, it's fear of well, death. It, it had occurred to me too that, um, that say the Christian story had been that Jesus is crucified, but as he's on the cross, he curses and he threatens the people who are crucifying him. And he says, mm -hmm. I'm going to come back. And when mm -hmm. I come back from the cross, you're going to wish you never saw me again. Yeah. And you're going to wish you never saw me because I'm going to do worse to you than you did to me. And I will restore my honor. So then Jesus comes back. And the first thing he does is he does worse to them the people that crucified him than they did to him. He finds out some way to punish them more to restore his honor. Yeah. But he doesn't ha he doesn't have to restore his honor. He's able to, he forgives the people while they're crucifying him. And then his disciples who failed him, he mm -hmm. forgives them. You know, he forgives, he forgives them too. And so I think it's interesting to me. It's not the cross is important, not in just that Jesus submits to our violence, but Jesus submits to the violence with love in his heart and no desire to seek revenge. That's right. And I, I think, yeah, I think you make a great point. And I think about the first sermon that's preached in Acts when when it's announced that this Jesus whom you crucified has come back from the dead, the people are cut to the heart, probably because they're terrified of exactly right. what you're talking about, because they all know that they were part of it. Um, and yet it's he comes back with a message of, of forgiveness. And I think, you know, uh, I teach a lot of screenwriting. I teach, uh, I, I use a lot of uh, Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. And people okay. always want to say, how does that apply to the story of Jesus? And I say, well, it doesn't. I said, it applies to the story of Peter. And I think, you know, that reconciliation between Jesus and Peter uh, is so powerful um, because Peter was the last one to join the mob to deny Jesus. And, um, and so, you know, the fact that Jesus comes to him and so, and that's recorded so explicitly what that interaction was like and what that restoration was like. It's, it's, it's profound. But I think, you know, a lot of people find that vengeful Jesus in the book of Revelation. That's where they go, wow, okay, right. Jesus was all forgivey, lovey-dovey, but he's coming back and he'll, he'll lay waste, you know. Well, that's um, interesting. It's interesting you bring up the book of Revelation because uh, the book of Revelation is kind of hard for people to get through. Um, and it, 
but what's interesting is that if you get all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation, it has kind of a, a little bit of a surprise ending. I mean, mm-hmm. you think everybody's in the the book of life is read. You think everybody is in the uh, everybody who's not in the book of life is in the lake of fire. Then all of a sudden, we see the New Jerusalem coming down. The gates are open, or always open, and the Spirit and the Bride, which represent the gathered-in church, um, are issuing this in- invitation: "Come and drink." And there are people, uh, there are people that are outside of the city city gates. Yeah, but we just, but it just seemed like everybody was in the Lake of Fire. But now they're in the city gates, and then, and then there's there's leaves for the healing of the nations on the trees in there. Well, why? It, in other words, it seems like it's set up to continue to receive people and continue for people to come in and to be healed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought Brad Jerzak did a good job of bringing that out in that her gates will never be shut book. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I also agree with Brian Zond who says, you know, people should have to get a license to uh, read or interpret the book of Revelation because uh, <clears throat> it, uh, you know, it just has been such a source of so many problems over the years. So I would... I wouldn't dare to be an interpreter, but I, I agree with you that the uh, the ending seems to confound a lot of people who want to find um, a vengeful God. You know, even people like Mark Driscoll, he'll move the sword out of Jesus' mouth and put it in his hand. You know, and uh, it's uh, you know it's a little bit comical in in a sense because we just need to find that vengeance. But you know, the other thing I was going to bring up there too is the idea of the leaves bringing healing to the nations. I think that. It takes me back also to the parable of the sheep and the goats um, in the mm-hmm. Gospels, where we often think about that as individuals being judged. Right, but it's the nations. It's the, it's the nations. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing because uh, one of the other problems we have uh, encountering the Bible from a Western society is just our highly individualistic way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about hell, we act as if individuals are the sole repository for all of the good and evil in their lives where you know we i think we we assume a way higher volitional capacity uh than people actually have because you know you listen to people like sam harris who i'm a big fan of he's really hammered away on this belief in in free will that we are somehow free agents in the world because he shows that the choices that we make are always made downstream of a vast array of influences that we aren't aware of um, and we can't articulate. Mm-hmm. And so the actual range of decisions that we are capable of making is pretty small and surely not of the caliber that they, you know, if we make the wrong one, we could, you know, they could have eternal consequences. I think that uh, Rennie Girard also talks about this idea of not in individuals, but interdividuals. So we are um, constantly imitating and being imitated by others. We are uh, a product of our environment in many ways. My, my educational background is in uh, sociology and uh, social work and that sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. and one of the best uh, things I ever studied was something called family systems therapy. So it's a way of approaching individuals who are acting out not as individuals who have a problem, but individuals who are manifesting negative energy in a system. Mm-hmm. And so, so what a family systems therapist will do was they will do a map of the individual's family and try and understand the pressures on that system and how negative energy is flowing through the system 
And what it tends to do is it tends to get stuck in certain individuals who are really susceptible to that negative energy. So the way to treat the individual, there's some things that can be done for that person individually, but it's really to treat the system. And so I think that when it comes to questions of judgment, you know, why is there talk of nations, you know, in the book of Revelation or in say in the sheep and the goats, it's because, you know, we are, we are not our own. Um, yeah. We are embedded into larger systems um, that we can one, influence, one the, but we're also influenced by. One of the, yeah, one of the things that was interesting to me is looking at Jesus is, is encountering a, a religious culture that had, that had a lot of embedded violence in it. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, he points out that you, you, you've got a lot of violence here that you don't realize that, you, you know, you think murder, but really it's when you're calling somebody a terrible name or you're destroying their reputation, or there's lots of ways that you're, that this violence has become embedded in it. You know, I tell you, love your enemies, do good to the people who persecute you. Uh, if somebody demands, if a Roman soldier or somebody demands you carry the pack a mile, carry it two miles. If your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're, if they're hungry, feed them. And so what he is saying is he's warning them against the, this, this violence that they've got going. And he's saying, you're thinking that violence is going to somehow solve your problems, but it's not. And what he's looking forward to is in a, gener in a generation's time, uh, this generation is going to lead, lead these folks into a violent uprising against Rome. And mm -hmm. Rome is going to come and the people are going to all rush into Jerusalem thinking that they'll be safe within the city walls of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, when that happens, head for the hills because you're not going to be safe in the city. And so what that made me realize is that Jesus wasn't talking about the end of the space-time world. Mm -hmm. Because if he was talking about the end of the space-time world, heading to the hills wouldn't, wouldn't do you any good. No. But if he was talking about how violence had become embedded in the, in the religious system of that day— and he was warning against, warning against, I used to wonder why is Jesus warning people against this sinful and adulterous generation? What are they doing? What's the sin that they are committing? Mm -hmm. When I finally realized the essential sin is the sin of violence, mm -hmm. that they, they're being violent towards each other. They're being unforgiving. They're, they're ready to participate in violence against their enemies, and it's all going to come crashing down on them. Once I get, began to put all that together, then Jesus made Jesus in his judgment language in the New Testament and his warnings about Gehenna, which is the word that he used mostly about the most severe kind of judgment, that that all had to do with the road, the path of violence that mm -hmm. we go on leads to Gehenna. That really helped me. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you have to ask the question of why are we violent? And violence is always a product of fear. Um, it's a fear of those who are in control of losing control or it's fear of being taken over. Um, and so we'll use violence as a form of self-preservation. And so, you know, we, we will justify violence when we think the highest good is self-preservation. And that's, again, that flies in the face of the gospel, which says, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to actually take up the means of your own execution, your, your cross and follow me. So, so death is, um, it's part of the package. And so fear of death can't be running the show. Like if you're going to follow Jesus, fear of death has to be something you, you in a sense, jettison. Um, and uh, I think that that's, um, you know, that that's one of the things I try and get across in JES USA is that as long as fear of death is running the show, we stay mm -hmm. on the merry-go-round. 
because all we're going to be doing is committing violence. And, and, you know, it's a very short step to go from violence to protect a group to a preemptive strike against someone who may attack the group right. to, in a sense, reaching out and becoming a global, uh, you know, superpower suppressing any spark of dissent that may pop up because it may be a threat to us. And I think that I, one of my biggest heroes is Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, the way he talks about violence is he says that, you know, violence, um, it doesn't solve any problem. It actually just creates new and more complicated versions of the problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a great way of thinking about things because you could, uh, you know, watch any mob movie and uh, somebody gets killed in a mob movie. Uh, well, what what does that do? That doesn't make the other side go, oh, I guess we were wrong. We better change the way we act. They say, no, you take out my son, I take out your family. And the other side says, you take out my family, I take out your community. And so all, all we are in is, is an arms race. Violence, um, you know, Walter Wink, who's somebody else I really admire, he says, violence is the most dangerous when it succeeds because it now becomes the model for how to make your way in the world. So if, if, if you use shock and awe against, uh, you know, the people of Iraq, um, uh, does that make them all stand back and say, oh, wow, we were so wrong. You guys have such a superior way of <laughs> looking at the world. No, it teaches yeah. them that the way to get your, what you want into, in the world is to find an even more powerful version of shock and awe. And so um, back and forth it goes. So no, no problem is solved through shock and awe. It just really creates resentment in the victims and it dehumanizes the people who use the violence. Like it, it just is, uh, it's a, it's an escalating, um, you know, series of errors. And again, though, we have to balance that with the whole idea of I'm not just an individual in the world. I have four kids and a wife and a lot of other people I care about. And so if violence mm -hmm. is brought against them, what will I do? Am I going to say, sorry, kids, I don't believe in this violence thing. <laughs> You're all going to die. Um, well, you, you do a really good job of that in Jesus, J-E-S-U-S-A, of you begin with some folks that are justifying the use of violence. And it's very disturbing mm -hmm. because I, was, I found myself disagreeing with them, but kind of agreeing with them, too. So on the one hand, I don't like violence. But on the other hand, if somebody is coming to use violence against me and then somebody else uses violence to stop them, from the violence against me, there's part of me that's pretty glad. Yeah. Well, and again, it, I think as the the people at the opening of JES USA are trying to point out is that there's some people who use violence for self selfish purposes, and there's other people who will kind of almost um, uh, reluctantly engage in violence as a protective mechanism. They're not trying to acquire. They're not trying to destroy. They're just merely trying to protect the flock, so to speak. And so who could argue against that? And, and I would say with these folks at the beginning of the film, I you know spent a fair amount of time with all of them and I believe that all of them uh, are trying to act out of a, you know, a, a, a fatherly desire to- right. Their sincerity really comes through. Oh yeah. And, and they're that, you know, one of them, Jimmy Meeks was a cop in Dallas, Texas for 40 years and he never drew his gun once. So even though he believes um, that he's perfectly justified to use violence, and he was also a hostage ne negotiator in one of the most violent cities in America, he always found a way not to do it um, to his credit. Um, and so at the same time, he says, we'd be ludicrous not to 
you know, say if we're a school or a church or something like that, not to take some sort of preventative action. And I, I would agree with him to the point that um, if you leave yourself an, uh, a ready target for those who would like to use violence, in a sense, you're almost enabling. So why not um, secure your perimeter? Like I go to my kid's school sometimes and I see the side door open on the gymnasium and I'm frustrated because you now have a point of entry into the school that nobody's, right. nobody's monitoring. Oh, sure. We've, I live in a small town. We've never had anything like that here. Well, that's yeah. the story of every town where it's ever happened, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that um, there's certain ways of um, not so much using, I don't, you know, locking a door isn't using violence, but right. it, it is hardening a target. And I think that I would agree, you know, that we have to accept certain realities that we live in a violent world and that um, we should take whatever means we can to eliminate the temptation to use violence against us. Right. Um, but before we even get to that stage, you know, I think that's so late along the line that I, you know, I asked the bigger question kind of jokingly on another interview is why do we have these big buildings that we need to protect? Why does the church have all this real estate that needs uh, security? Right. Um, you know, why, what are we, uh, what are we up to in the world, um, that, you know, we're making ourselves these vulnerable targets, um, before the problem, you know, with trying to ask questions of violence as well as we tend to ask the question once the horses are out of the barn. Um, yeah, I, I think there's so much, you know, work that we can do in the world that prevents, um, violence from arising in the first place. And that gets back to more systemic issues. One of the things that uh, changed for me when when I began to realize that universal salvation or universal restoration was the best way for me to finally put my Christian faith together is I began to think, okay, I'm I'm going to. I remember when I started thinking, okay, I'm going to I'm going to do this. I'm going to start believing this way and just see how it how it affects me spiritually. Mm -hmm. And so I started. I started to believe that Jesus was the savior of the whole world and of all people, and that every other person in, in the world, in the whole world, was my brother and sister, my eternal brother and sister, with whom I was destined to be reconciled. So I started to think, I'm going to be spending eternity, or whatever that is, with all of these people. If they come to me, even in the form of an enemy, I will still ultimately one day be reconciled with them and we'll be in eternity together. And then I started to think, okay, well, I don't want to use violence against any of my brothers and sisters who I'll be spending eternity with. <laughs> yeah, make it awkward. And, yeah, and, uh, and just how that made me feel differently towards even images that I would see of terrorists on television or, or, or people that I might politically disagree with very strongly. But I would just say to myself, well, you know, even if they're saying things right now that I find horribly offensive, they're still my eternal brother and sister, and I anticipate that they will they will see better one day, and that I will see better one day too, even from where I am, and that we're all destined to look back with the, some amount of chagrin on some of the things that we did in this life, mm -hmm. and but that but God's ultimate purpose is for us to all learn lessons, not just as individuals, but as as a group, and so I can afford to love all these people. And I can also see why now it doesn't make sense for me to use violence, um, you know, some kind of lethal violence against any of them. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, seeking to understand, I think this is where free will to me is one of the biggest problems that we face, this, this belief in free will, because it's, it, it 
causes us to take way too much credit for our successes and, and assign too much blame on other people for their failures. Um, and, and, and the idea to think that we could have chosen otherwise, um, I think is, and, and yet we purposely didn't. I, I think that's one of the the real things that we're battling, you know, and I think C.S. Lewis has played such a hugely influential role in, in inculcating this belief in the Christian world. But um, I think, you know, also uh, when we are confronted with somebody who we strongly disagree with, I like to think about two things. Number one, thinking about that person as a mirror, that we're reacting to something in that person, which is a manifestation of something within us. Something mm-hmm. maybe we don't want to confront, but that person the old, is, you spot it, you spot it, you got it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so using that as an opportunity to reflect, um, but also to try and trace the path. Like I have a person I grew up with who is, uh, you know, as I say, drinking the QAnon Kool Aid and and uh, still insisting the pandemic isn't real and and uh, all that sort of thing. And and it just boggles my mind to listen to this person rant and rave, and yet I want to go back in his history and find out. Um, you know, at one point we we're kind of on parallel roads, but now we've diverged significantly. Where did that divergence happen and how did it happen? Right. What was, you know, and again, this is maybe the sociologist in me wanting to understand how does somebody become socialized into a certain way of looking at the world? I find it really fascinating scientifically, but I also think it can be practically useful, um, in terms of helping somebody like that, um, bring them to a point where they stop and think about um, the road that they're on. And also to ask the same thing about myself. Well, I automatically assume I'm on the right road. Where did I come to that conclusion? Um, and, uh, what were the main influences and, you know, uh, what's the strongest counter argument to the position I currently hold? Am I even aware that one exists and what do I have to say in response to it? And I think that that constant self-examination, um, it also brings humility, um, because, you know, I, I like to say to people, you should be like a Christian scientist. And I, I don't mean the religion. I mean, be scientific in terms of um, all we ever have is a provisional understanding of reality. I was listening to somebody the other day who heads up a 25-person lab that studies the brain. And she, uh, you know, has tens of millions of dollars of grant money that she uses every year. But she says, you mm-hmm. know, there's one word I'm always hesitant to use, which is the F word, fact. I never know precisely whether I've actually discovered a fact. And I'm always hesitant to say that because I may learn something tomorrow that causes me to question that. And I think that sort of epistemological humility would go a long way. Just well, the more, of- I was just going to say a more colloquial way of putting it is when I interviewed Frank Schaefer for Hellbound, he said, uh, you know, nobody ever flew a plane into a building and their last words were, I could be wrong about this, you know? <laughs> Well, one of the things that I have said is that, you know, because some people say, well, you know, Christian universalism, you're going too far with that because you're saying that, uh, that, that you know that God is ultimately going to restore all things and, and all people. And that's, we can't know that. That's a mystery beyond which we can, we shouldn't say that, you know, we mm-hmm. don't know, we don't know enough to, to know that, um, but I see indications in the scriptures that God will ultimately be all in all and that Jesus wants to draw all people to himself. And and so uh, I, when I put the whole thing together, I'm persuaded that that's the best way to put the scriptures together. And But I can't say for 100% with 100% certainty that that's, that that's actually right. But what I can say is, the way I like to put it is, I can't know with certainty if what I believe to be true is true, but I can know with certainty what I believe to be true. 
Right. And I can it's, live yeah. and I can live and I can live accordingly. And the nice thing about, uh, the, the, so it's, uh, so I do believe my spirituality is that I'm a Christian. I believe that, uh, God was ultimately in the business of restoring all of God's children to God's self, uh, in the coming ages and that we are all destined to, to be reconciled and to live in a joyful harmony with each other. And that is to be our eternal state. And the more that I've lived this way spiritually as my conviction, I, I, I don't go around saying I can prove this to be true. I think I can show my reasons for it, but the more that I have just lived this way, the more per- personally it has affected my spirituality and my capacity for forgiving others has increased. My mm-hmm. capacity for experiencing joy has increased. My compassion, my capacity for hopefulness has increased. I just wonder if you've had, you know, experiences like that as you have experienced this spirituality has it sort of broadened your ability for love and compassion and forgiveness and reconciliation in your own life. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, and, and it begins with me. It begins with, you know, f- give, having grace on myself. I've always been very hard on myself. Um, huh. And, uh you know, um, and have even rejected myself. Like I, I just a bit of my biography, I was adopted. I was given up for adoption at birth. And then I was put in some bad situations in terms of neglect and I had failure to thrive syndrome and all that sort of thing. And then I was finally placed with a family, but then I was hospitalized repeatedly throughout my first year. And, and I think out of that came, you know, a, a really, a my first experience of the world is rejection, abandonment. Right. And so that is something I didn't process consciously. It just was always lurking underneath my, uh-huh. my way of viewing myself. And I just, I realized at a certain point in my life, whenever I met people, I just assumed they hated me. That was my automatic assumption right. that that was how people would react to me, that there was something wrong with me. And it, you know, I think that this whole way of looking at things has helped me reconcile and along with that came a lot of anger too um and uh i think that you know having this view of things it begins with me finding peace or a greater sense of peace within myself dealing with some of those issues but yeah definitely with other people i mean it uh you know again my first response is not to be outraged but to try and understand how could that person have reached that conclusion how right. could they reach a point where they feel that this is the best use of their time, energy, and resources um, when I feel like they're a rational individual and I could engage them in conversation, yet we've come to such, such drastically different conclusions? I want to understand because I, and uh, I want to understand how that works consistently. But the other thing, too, is like you said, I, I would never presume to know what God will do. I wouldn't even presume to know really who God is uh, or what God is like. I All I'm trying to do is seek the best cohesion of the things that we believe or the things that I believe. So if we're going to mm-hmm. believe that love, the ultimate form of love is um, unconditional love, in fact, even love of enemy, um, if that's real, can we reconcile that with hell? If we believe the ultimate form of justice is reconciliation between offender and victim, can we reconcile that with hell? If we believe that the ultimate form of freedom is a fully informed uh, choice that is not made out of hurt, it's not made out of ignorance, um, can we re- can we reconcile that with somebody choosing hell instead of God? 
uh, just go down the list of things we believe in. Can we reconcile them with eternal conscious torment and have what we would call a rational approach to the world? And I would say no in every single case. So uh, yeah, that's why I feel in a sense, I'm very conscious of our limited awareness of things, but I also feel quite certain that um, none of that, that you can't make a rational case for either annihilationism or uh, eternal conscious torment if you actually really sit down and define the terms and try and reconcile them with those concepts. Yeah, David Bentley Hart does a really good job of analyzing the the problem with a common understanding of free will, meaning that we can actually we can actually do anything we want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and coming to a higher understanding that 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 actually we do there is a certain direction that we are that we are given and that when we realize that that's part of our gift uh from being for being god's child that we're really only truly free when we understand that when we understand who we are who god is what actually is in our best interest and once we understand and once that's all cleared away then, then to to walk away from that in full knowledge of it would be the most irrational decision, the most irrational decision of all. Yeah. And that analysis of free will was kind of once I really got that 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 took away one of my last uh, hurdles because I was prevented for a while for a period of time from uh, embracing the Christian universalism because I thought, oh well, that might deny people's free will to reject God, but that. Then I then David Bentley Hart and Thomas Talbot and others helped me to really understand that no person who is perfectly expressing their will freely would would make that decision. That, right. that, that essentially it's an irrational it's an irrational decision. Yeah. So that means if hell exists, it's full of irrational people. And you could say, well, yeah, uh, sin is inherently irrational. It's acting as if the consequences, the the natural consequences of the world, don't apply to you. But uh, I mean, why would you make an irrational choice unless you're in bondage to ignorance, you're in bondage to some kind of emotional hurt, in bondage to addiction? You're not free. Um, and you know the way Sam Harris puts it is, okay, let's look at how do your choices come into existence? Either they're all determined by a prior cause, in which case they're not free, or they are completely independent of prior causes, which means they're still not free because you have no way to even explain how they happened. So no matter what, you're in a position where the idea of a free choice doesn't exist. And and I think the most rational way to think about things is that any choice you make is always going to be predicated on a prior, I mean, it has to have a prior cause. Um, and so the question is, what is that cause? So there's always, it's kind of like Bitcoin, right? The blockchain, um, you know, there's every block in the chain is linked to every other block in the chain. So if you look at every decision you've made, somehow it's linked back, but but we're still downstream of all kinds of things that we we simply can't control. So I think that should, you know, give us a lot of grace. We should be very hesitant to take credit um, because, you know, hey, I work really hard, you know, I make a lot of money. So I'm a good person. I'm better than those people who don't. Yeah, but you can't explain why you're predisposed to work hard um, and why you have the talents to make a lot of money. I I finally determined that I was going to take no credit for things that that I was going to let everything be 100% grace. And if I had some good inclination, it was a gift somewhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a gift given to me by God or it was a gift given to me by others who came into my life and helped point me in a good direction. And even, even my inclination to want to do the good is a gift in itself. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a turning point for me was when I um, was going through a time and I was asking God, uh, God, what if I fell so far? Um, you know, how, how far does your saving love go for me? Can I fall? Can I fall out of it? And uh, what I got in my own way of getting things from God was, David, this doesn't have to do with you having me. This has to do with me having you. Mm-hmm. And I started to believe, well, God is my ultimate parent who loves me and who 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 has already uh, decided and determined that I am to be part of a glorious, uh, huge, reconciled family. And uh, But God is letting me in a sense, cast about and discover all these things uh, Mm -hmm. through trial and error in this life and whatever is beyond this life until I finally, uh, until I finally discover this wonderful truth, which is that that this has always been grace and love and mercy from the very beginning. And now I'm just becoming increasingly aware of how amazing it all is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny lately, I just been thinking, I'm just too tired to believe in God. <laughs> and by that, I mean, I just have been so immersed in these types of debates and conversations for so long. I mean, really going back to Expelled, you know, which I began working on in 2005, um, that, you know, you just re- reach a stage of exhaustion because I think I realized that a long part of my efforts, even making these films, is is an effort at control. It's, um, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's some, it's me trying to find freedom, um, through control. Um, so if I can sort of find that, that ultimate argument, if I can find that, uh, you know, ultimate formulation of things. And I, I think I've kind of just through sheer exhaustion, I've kind of transcended that to the point where kind of, like you say, it's not in my hands. Um, and I'm sort of really just throwing myself onto the mercy of the universe. Yeah, it's kind of like when uh, when we would do in church camp. Sometimes you do the thing, the trust fall. Yeah, where you yeah. fall back and you just let yourself be let yourself be caught. Caught in, in a way, this Christian universalism for me is kind of the ultimate trust fall. Mm-hmm. I am, I am. This is not about. This is all about. This is all about you, God, and your grace and your mercy and learning just to completely let myself trust in that and to, and to, and to grow in that. Mm-hmm. And that has been really, um, that has been really positive spiritually for me because I think what I, what I had done without thinking about it was that the Christianity that I was practicing was one in which grace was a big part of it. It was like, great. God was with you and God would, God would be with you and God would just work and work and work with you. But there was this one little part that was in my theology, unless you do X. Right. And if you do X, then, well, you're lost forever. Mm -hmm. And then I began to wonder, well, what is that X? What is that thing? And I realized that it was sort of the absence of grace, that there was this place where grace couldn't, couldn't be effective anymore. And so then I just had to say to myself, well, grace, I think grace has to be 100% effective. And if it's 100% effective for for me, it has to be 100% effective for everybody. And so the ultimate, the best way to put it together is we're just all being perfectly loved in grace until we are, until we are healed and well and, and we have been forgiven at a level that we can't even comprehend. It's not something that we earned. It, that's grace too. And, 
And so sometimes I tell people that grace was part of my theology and it was a big part of my theology. And then finally, it was just everything. Finally, it was just the lens through which I saw everything. And so Christian universalism for me really is about grace. That's why the title of my book is Grace Saves All. That it's really, it's just, to me, this is all about grace and mercy being everything. And that's just so freeing when you can realize you can claim that for yourself and for and for everybody else. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that about your approach because you're you're similar to how Thomas Talbot deals with love. You know, he says, "Well, let's let's actually examine what this means." And so, you know, you you reach a point for it to be what we think it is. It, it has to be unlimited. And so, uh, yeah, I think you're you're standing alongside you know some of the best people who have who've tried to work through this issue. Yeah, and it's funny how grace, you know, it's it's that thing that's dangled to people before they you know, uh, enter the fold. And then the minute they're inside, oh, well, there is, uh, we got to really, uh, you know, qualify what we mean by this now, you know, once you're, right. once you're, once you're inside. And, that's a little uh, bait and switch. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's definitely the case. But, you know, again, the other thing too, is I'm always trying to argue for epistemological humility. I teach a lot on screenwriting and, um, I find storytelling so, it teaches me so much about life and um, it's so fascinating how stories hit upon this, this message over and over and over again, because really the lowest point of a story for any hero is the ordeal, the dark night of the soul where they've stubbornly refused to learn the lesson that the story is trying to teach them. And it looks like they've fallen beyond the point of redemption, but mm -hmm. what reaches down and pulls them up? It's grace. It's something they don't deserve. Um, because they've been so stubborn, but it's the thing that changes everything. And, uh, and it, it completely changes the direction of the story and it allows them to re-engage the antagonist with a completely new way of looking at the world. And that encounter with grace almost always switches the protagonist from self-centered to selfless. They're now willing to lay down their life, um, for this thing that they've discovered, uh, because they, they, in a sense have realized their role in the greater picture. Um, you know, it's funny, this takes a really literal form in the movie Pulp Fiction. Um, if you, uh, huh. if you watch, uh, the scene, it's a very disturbing scene that happens underneath a pawn shop in, in Pulp Fiction when, uh, Butch the boxer gets out, uh, he ends up, uh, finding the keys to a motorcycle that was owned by the person who was persecuting him down in the basement. And the name of the motorcycle on the tank is Grace. And I find that so interesting because that's what he uses to ride off and get away, um, after going through this terrible ordeal. So I think that that's something we can see played out over and over again in stories. We kind of recognize this truth and storytellers can never find a satisfying way to resolve a story unless the protagonist comes to the end of themselves um, and in a sense does that trust fall and the universe catches them and um, and leads them back. And uh, so I think that's just such a fascinating thing that it seems to be hardwired into us. And that gets back to the whole thing of, you know, we are constructing our reality all the time. We act as if, you know, things like the Bible have an inherent meaning. We just have to discern what it is, but it's just not true. We, um, there was definitely an intent that authors had when they wrote the books of the Bible, but what does it actually mean? Um, and we project meaning onto the world around us all the time. I do an exercise with my, my screenwriting class where I show them two lines on a screen that could be a B or could be a 13. And I ask them what it is. And I prime half the group with numbers and half the group with letters before I show them that image. And of course, the ones who've seen numbers, they think it's a 13. The ones who've seen letters tend to think it's a B. 
And so then I, I start to move that figure around. I turn it sideways. I turn it backwards. I turn it upside down. And uh, I put context around it. I remove it. And I come back to it and say, what is it? And at this point, we've so deconstructed those things that we realize this is a straight line and a curved line. And any meaning it has beyond that is a meaning that we give to it. It has no inherent meaning. And I think that's a key revelation that um, you know characters go through in a, in a film is they think things have inherent meanings and they're willing to kill for them. They're willing to die for them because they think they have to do that in defense of the truth. But what happens in the ordeal is they realize that they've been all along, they've been beholden to a tradition, just kind of circles back to the beginning of our discussion, which mm-hmm. they they thought was the truth, which they, now they realize was just merely an interpretation. It was something that was created by humans. And um, are they now willing to kill for it and die for it? Because what if it's wrong? Um, <clears throat> perhaps what they need to do, and perhaps the whole reason why they ran into the antagonist was because the antagonist had a completely different way of looking at things that they could actually learn something from. And that the goal of the story is not to defeat the antagonist, but to incorporate the part of the picture that the antagonist has. Um, because that's another piece that allows us to see things. You know. Uh, Ron Dart, who's featured in Hellbound, who's been a big influence on me, he says that every reading of a text, it reveals some things and it conceals others. And in fact, it has to conceal certain things to bring other things into sharp focus. So if I'm looking at something close up, my my eyes have to automatically blur out the background. So I think mm-hmm. I'm seeing this microphone really clearly, but by seeing the microphone clearly, I can't see you know the deer walking past my window outside. Right, And so in order to see something clearly, we have to suppress huge amounts of information. That's why it's really, really important. That's why it's really important that we listen to each other because we're all focusing and suppressing different types of information. We're never seeing the whole picture. It's impossible. And so, um, again, hopefully that introduces some humility into, uh, whatever camp we've, we've decided yeah. to, uh, park ourselves know, in. You know, and, and you had, uh, you had some dark moments in your story and in, in, in my story, you know, I said, I didn't grow up going to, going to church. And so then I, I, I rejected whatever it was that fundamentalism, but then I realized I sort of had nothing and I had a dark night and I, I, I remember thinking, well, maybe life is meaningless and we just die and that's it. And then I started, you know, thinking, but what if maybe what if there was something good at the center of everything and that what if we were all headed somewhere? Uh, what if we were all headed somewhere good? And then that that started a journey. And uh, C.S. Lewis uh, was, you know, kind of a, a first light on that and the Chronicles of Narnia. And then uh from there on to discovering George MacDonald and, mm-hmm. you know, and then um, the scholars like uh, David Bentley Hart and Robin Perry and Laria Ramelli, and then just realizing that there were some really well-educated Christians throughout the his- throughout history and in, in our day now. And that, um, and that if I wanted to believe that God was ultimately good, was going to restore everyone, that Jesus was the savior that I could do that and that I had a lot of good company and a lot of really intelligent people who had reached that same conclusion as well. And so along the way, you're one of those persons <laughs> that I ran across in my journey through, you know, first through your, uh, through your documentaries, but it's been a real pleasure just to make a connection with you and to get to, 
and to, and to get to visit with you. So um, thank you so much for, uh, you know, your process and you're working through your process. You gave us some, some, you've given us some wonderful documentaries and you're doing the screenwriting. Now just say a little bit as we're winding up here, you're on a new journey now of writing a young adult, uh, young adult fiction. And that's, uh, and, and so say some about that and where sure. that's taking you. Yeah. Well, you know, growing up, I always wanted to become, you know, a great Canadian novelist. Um, but I also love film and comic books and that sort of thing. So I was kind of torn in two different directions. I started in publishing, then I got into uh, filmmaking and uh, kind of fell into documentaries. It wasn't really something I set out to do. I was trying to actually become a feature film writer. And But documentaries seemed to be a good fit for me, and, and it became a way of working through some of these issues. Um, so over the last few years, I've returned back to my love of uh, fiction, and I have a, a middle grade novel series called the Milligan Creek series that's aimed at kids ages uh, 8 to 12. I'm actually about to launch a new series. It's actually a horror series uh, for ages 12 and up called the Uncanny Icon series. Um, and I, it's kind of exciting. I like working in the horror genre because it allows you to, uh, number one, moving up uh, in terms of age, you can tackle some more serious subjects, but you can also try and grapple with some some deeper philosophical topics. So my first novel uh, in the Uncanny Icon series, it's coming out in uh, June, it's called Pumpkins. Uh, and each book in the series is based around a different icon of Halloween. But Pumpkins is a ghost story and it's you know really about a community coming to terms with its past, which, you know, like many communities was drenched in blood. And um, there's been a myth told about that story um, that is, uh, you know, hiding the violence of the community. And that's going to come to the foreground because, you know, the dead just won't stay dead. <laughs> and uh, they, they, they want to come and teach us something. And so uh, it's uh, it's a fun opportunity to come at some of, some of these ideas in a fictional form. But I, I always believe, you know, when I'm writing a novel, I never set out to try and teach a lesson. I always feel that the story has something something to teach me. And one of my jobs as a writer is to discover what that is. And that's something that that ends up coming to the fore, you know, midway through the writing process. And I find it, uh, you know, very exciting and, and a lot of fun. Well, that's really, that's really interesting. And uh, so look forward to uh, checking out the Milligan Creek series and then the what's the name of the new series it's called uh, the uncanny icon series yeah, yeah. uncanny icon so that's a, a really creative way that you're that you're expressing yourself now these days as well so kevin thank you so much for the documentary films that you've made and the thoughtfulness in your journey and, and i think a lot of us look forward to seeing uh, what you're going to be up to and doing next great well thank you i appreciate the opportunity and i really appreciate what you're doing as well all right all right kevin talk to you later all right Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.